Good morning, everyone. It's almost lunchtime. Who's hungry? Don't lie. You look like you're hungry. But you're a growing college boy. You're always hungry. Am I lying? No. See, he knows. This guy right here, he's been hungry since he came here. So uh, let me, I want to start. First of all, I, I thank the Lord that I'm here. Not only that, that, that the college has graciously offered uh, that I could come and speak to you guys, but it took us 12 hours to get from uh, essentially Kuski, Idaho, to Butte, Montana, which it should only take six hours to get from Kuski to here. That's how the roads were. We, we were going up Lolo Pass yesterday, and a semi-truck driver who had never driven a snowy pass before decided he was going to choose that day to go up the one of the most dangerous passes, and jackknife his semi-truck and shut down the pass right in front of us. So we sat for four and a half hours before a wrecker could get up there, and thankfully we're here. So I just want to give God the glory for that because I tell you what, the roads last night were so bad. In a 30-mile stretch, we seen two semis and a truck flipped over. And I was like, all right, we're done. We're, we're pulling over in Butte. We're going we're gonna to go to Bozeman in the morning because it was, it was that crazy. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Alaka first. And I know that this was, uh, this semester is focused on missions. And I've been in missions for 12 years uh, in youth ministry over a decade. And I can tell you all kinds of crazy different things that have happened in missions. But here's the thing. I have never left this country in missions. I worked for an organization called Youth for Christ. The longest mission that I was at, we were at a high school in an inner city, and we had about 150 inner city kids came, that came to our program. And only about 20 of those kids went to any type of church. So I want you guys, when we're thinking about missions, you've probably had other people come in and talk about missions. I want you to get out of your mind that you have to leave and go somewhere. Okay, I want you to get it out of your mind that you have to be somewhere else to do missions. I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. I want to share a little bit about myself and then a little bit about the camp. Uh, like I said, I've been missions for, for 12 years uh, in youth ministry over a decade. I've only been at the camp now for a year and a half, almost, almost two years going on. Camp ministry is a whole different ballgame, especially when you come from church ministry. And I thought I was going to have to learn so much, and then we got there and realized God had been training and equipping us all along the way. It's been a crazy, fun experience, uh, but emphasis on crazy experience, because we live in the middle of the mountains now. And, you know, I grew up just north of Chicago, just south of Milwaukee, super inner city, uh, only white kid on the block. Um, Dakota knows. Dakota grew up there. Dakota over here is, is my program director at the camp. He was in my youth group as a student. Uh, fun fact about Dakota, he was that big in seventh grade. I have a picture to prove it. Um, we, we grew up in a very inner city, very poor, poverty-stricken area. The funny thing is, it's super poor where I grew up, and then just a few blocks over is some of the most rich people in that area of the country. Uh, we have five Fortune 500 companies that are in that town that I was in. So there's some very rich people and some very poor people. Uh, I grew up, know what it's like to be hungry, know what it's like to not be loved, 
to uh, not have anybody feel like you, nobody cares about you, um, society forgot about you. I know what it's like to be left behind, or at least feel that way. Uh, so much so that my only church experience growing up was um, uh, this little old lady uh, who I love dearly. Um, she used to pick me up, and she would take me to this program called the Wanas. And I would go to church, and the only thing I knew about church is if I memorized Bible verses, I got candy. And if I won the games, I got candy. So I got really good at memorizing Bible verses and really good at winning games because I liked the candy. Uh, I continued to do this through my childhood up until I was 14. And the summer I turned 15, I remember making this conscious choice that I was never going back to church again. I was going to run the streets with my friends. Um, my family didn't care about me. I come from a broken home. My mom and dad um, were divorced. I never even knew them married. Uh, drugs, alcohol, neglect, you name it. That's, that's the life that I grew up. Violence. Um, I was a very angry kid growing up, super angry. The only time I actually went and had fun and felt calm and relaxed is when I went to church with my, with my grandma. That little old lady was my grandma. And... Um, a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, I was blessed with being able to perform her funeral, which you think, how is that a blessing? Well, let me tell you, about five years ago, my grandma had said, when I die, because you know what's going to happen soon, because I'm old, I want you to do a gospel presentation at my funeral, because none of the rest of my family is saved. Nobody except for one aunt and uncle are saved. Her youngest child, my Aunt Kim, and her husband, Roger, are the only people saved in our family. My grandma said, I know that you'll do it because you don't, you're not afraid of everybody in the family. and You don't care what they think. And so I was blessed with being able to perform her funeral. And this is why it was a blessing. Because at 15, I, choose to, I chose to walk away from the church. By 16, I was in juvenile prison. By 17, I was in adult prison. And I spent the rest of that time, instead of graduating high school, until 29 years old in adult prison. There was a stretch in there of about three years where I was classified as, as one of the most eight violent inmates in the Wisconsin prison system. I didn't care. I had no hope. I thought society had given up on me. I walked away from everything. My family didn't love me. My friends all told on me that's how I went to prison. I had nothing. Nothing at all. And then sitting in a cell with nothing for two and a half years. Think of this. Go home when you're back at home and lock yourself in your bathroom, and that's where I lived for two and a half years. Actually, that's where I lived for three years, but the story is two and a half right now. Two and a half years into this, no human contact other than the guards feeding me, light on 24 hours a day, crazy circumstances, losing my mind, I remember my grandma telling me, after I walked away from the church, when you reach rock bottom, cry out to God. And I was like, my grandma's crazy, but I still love her. Well, let me tell you, sitting on that cement floor, nothing but my birthday suit on, nothing, not even blankets in this cell, crying like a baby. I remember those words. 
And so I said, you know, being the tough guy that I was, okay, God, if you're real, if, you know, I still had a challenge. That's my personality is challenging people. If you're real, you have to prove it. Can you imagine that? The audacity of telling God he has to prove himself? I mean, I didn't know any better. I didn't even think he was real. So here I am challenging God, and I'm sitting there, and I remember hearing these words. And it's not like hearing like you guys hear me right now. Like I didn't audibly hear in my ears. I felt these words with every fiber of my being. Enough. It's over. Get up. And I froze. And every hair in my body stood up. And I thought, you really are going crazy. (laughs) Now you have people talking to you in your mind. And then I was like, at least I hope I'm going crazy. Because if I'm not going crazy, that was God. And that means God's real. That means everything I've done up until this point in my life, I've done against God. And if God's real and I've lived my life against him, man, I remember some of them stories from the Old Testament. That was pretty scary. Like, is he going to open up this cell floor and there I'm gone? Like, I remember almost wishing I was crazy. And then I got up and I went and asked the guard for a Bible and he gave me a Bible. And still being who I am, I said, okay, God, if that was really you holding this Bible in my hand, if that's really you, I'm going to open up this Bible and you're going to speak I'm not even going to say in my mind what it is I want you to answer because I don't want you to read my mind. told you I was going crazy. Okay. <laughs> but I'm going to open it, and you're going to show it. And I opened the Bible, and I read the first page and was like, ha, yeah, see? That's what I thought. And I look over at the other page and was like, okay, that's not fair. Shut the Bible. Like, somehow you knew. And I did it again, and I did it again, and I did it again. And every single time I opened the Bible, and every single time he answered a question, or a concern, or something even stupid. And I remember thinking, okay, God is real. God is real. Fast forward some time, I still still spent some time in prison. But that time God spent growing me and showing me his faithfulness. And there's so much more to that story. But the greatest part is I was supposed to be released from prison November 24th, 2018. Yep, just a couple months ago. But I told you I've been in missions for 12 years. I've been in youth ministry for a decade. See, 13 years ago, God just opened the doors and released me from prison, free and clear. No probation, no parole. Changed my sentence. Drastically changed my life. I got out right away. Um, Within months, I was... Uh, going to a church and looking into youth ministry. Uh, went to Trinity International University. Crazy God story. Went in there in the middle of a semester to just see the college. And they were like, you guys, you want to start next week? And I was like, sure, God, okay. <laughs> middle of a semester. Um, I'll start college right now, 30 years old. Um, And God set me on this journey in this path. And I want to tell you something about ministry. It's never what you think it is, ever. It's the same thing in the missions field. It it is never what you think it is. I want to read a passage of Scripture if you have your Bibles with you. Go to 1 Timothy, chapter 1, starting in verse 12. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, starting in verse 12. 
See, you know, there's a lot of people. Have you heard people that have life verses? How many people have a life first? Does anybody in here have a life first? A couple of you guys. I have like a life half chapter. Okay, I'm going to read this and you're going to see why. First um, Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 says, This is Paul speaking to Timothy. All right. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It goes on, the rest of that speaks to me. But this was me. It says, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy. But what I want you to look at is the end of verse 1. It says that he, speaking of Christ, considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. That goes into what I want to tell you guys about today. If you stay in Timothy and you go to chapter 4, I'm going to read from there in a second. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Starting in verse 11 when we get there. I'm going to put you guys all on the spot. I told you I'm a challenger. That's who I am. How many in here believe you are saved? Okay. If you're in here and you believe you are saved, then he has appointed you. Every one of you. If you are in here and you believe you are saved, then you have been appointed by him to do his good works that he set for you before you even knew them. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 11, says this, Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. And Timothy, he calls his, his son in the ministry. He looks at Timothy as his own child. Like, he loves him that much. It's his, it's his closest disciple. He's raised him up. And he's left Timothy in charge of this, you know, little fledgling church in the town of Ephesus. Okay? So all of Ephesians and all their problems, that's what Timothy was in charge of. Here's the thing. Timothy was only probably around your age. And he was left in charge of a church that if you just go through Ephesians, you'll understand the problems that were there. But he put somebody your age in charge of it. And Paul gave him four commands in this. Four commands I want you to look at in these scriptures. In verse 11, he sa- or verse 12, he says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Paul's first command is to teach. False. Paul's first command is to teach. You guys are in Bible college. How many of you have grown up in the church? It's okay if you didn't. I already told you I didn't. How many of you have grown up in the church? So most of you know a lot of Bible stories, right? If you are saved, then you should at least have a, a, a simple concept, a simple grasp on the gospel. Right? You should each have that. If you were saved, you have to understand why you were saved and how you were saved. 
So Paul's first command is to teach. His second command comes out of verse 13. He says, until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Paul's second command is to go public. In other words, reaching out to your friends here is great, but we just saw by the show of hands, most of you believe you're believed, that you're believers, right? Most of you believe that you're believers. So who are you reaching? I'm not saying iron sharpening iron doesn't count. Trust me, it does. It's huge. What I'm saying is there's a lot bigger field than the, than the 40 or so young people that are in chapel right here. Okay? Command number three. Paul says in verse 14, Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders lays hand on you. Paul's command is on neglect. If you believe you're a believer, you like that, believe you're a believer? Say that a bunch of times. I'll confuse myself. If you believe that you are saved, then you have a duty that we're going to talk about in a minute. And you can't neglect that because if you do, then you are directly disobeying God. Okay? Last command. Paul's command to be diligent. Verse 15 and 16 says, Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, here's the great part. If you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. My grandma took me to church all the time. She'd pick me up. She'd take me to Awanas. I walked away. Do you know what she did when I walked away? She prayed for me all the time, every day. We heard uh, someone come up and, and speak about praying for his brother for three years. My grandma prayed for me for years. Before she passed away, she told me that she always knew that I would be a pastor. See, I'm an ordained pastor. I've been in ministry for a long time. And she never gave up that dream. She said God told her that, and she knew that it would be so. No matter what I did, where I was at, halfway sitting in prison for so long, like, yeah, this lady's crazy. But she never gave up. You see, her mission field was her family. Her mission field was the people directly in front of her, at her work, her friends, and she never gave up on them. You don't have to go abroad to find your mission field. Your mission field is placed right in front of you. It's always there. It's always been there from the day you became saved. Matthew 28. Who knows where I'm going with this? The end of Matthew 28, what does Jesus do? Right before he leaves. What does he do? Anybody tell me? Casey, what does he do at the end of Matthew 28? The Great Commission, which is what? He tells them to do what? Go out and make disciples. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go out and make disciples. I want to close with this. When you become saved, when you give your life to the Lord, you do exactly that. You give your life to the Lord. Okay? You guys are here at Bible College figuring out what, he, what that looks like in your life. Some of you may go into ministry. Some of you may go into secular jobs. Does that mean the people in ministry have uh, more uh, say-so in who become saved? Does that mean you go into a secular job and you just quit? No, because I'll tell you what, being in a secular job is way harder to bring people to Christ than it is 
in the missions field, okay? It's way harder, but that's your missions field. That's where God has put you. That's where he's placed you. It's his command on your life. And going through the opportunity that you have here, learning more about the Bible, learning church history, learning all of these things will better equip you no matter where you go in your life. Missions is about spreading the good news or the gospel. And the good news is that Jesus lived and walked on this earth, died for our sins, your sins, the people that you're talking to sins, and three days later rose again. And then still gave instructions on how he wanted us to go out into the world and do this. That's a command for every believer, every person that's saved. You've seen in the beginning we showed at camp that we take 10 college students and we spend seven weeks in the summer and it's a paid internship. And we go backpacking in the mountains and they spend four weeks as a camp counselor and they spend one week in a handicap camp working one-on-one with a handicap kid. And we do one week of service projects. And it's like, oh, that's a summer job working at a camp. Great. That's not what we do. We take 10 young college people your age and we spend seven weeks pouring into them, discipling them, equipping them to go out, whether it's back to school, to a job, to home, on another mission trip, whatever. We spend seven weeks equipping them to understand their story in the gospel. We live missionally. We live mission-minded. In other words, I don't live my life like, oh, I'm going to go on this mission trip, or oh, I have these college students coming and we're just going to hang out for the summer. No, I live my life every day like every person I come in contact is a mission. And do I fail? All the time. But I try to live my life that way. It's a lifestyle. You get it in your mind that you are called to be in missions. No matter what it is you're doing in your life, it'll change who you are. Can I pray for you? Father, we come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we could get together and have chapel and and sing some worship and praise and bring honor and glory to your name. I thank you for each one of these young people in here. I pray, Father, that you just continue to work in their hearts, continue to Um, vocalize the call in their lives, whatever it is, and continually remind them that they have opportunity after opportunity to work in the mission field right in front of them that you have placed them in this very moment. I thank you for them. I thank you for this time that we've had together. I pray that we just continue to go forth and bring honor and glory to your name. I pray this in Jesus' most holy name. Amen.